Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello, welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly guide to all the latest breaking royal news and views right here on Mail Plus. We're delivering from our homes directly into yours this week again. And here's what you've got to look forward to on the show. How much is the Queen really worth? It's a question worth pondering on as royal expert David McClure says that sharing that information is one of the Queen's red lines. And Princess Anne gave us a glimpse of her sitting room when watching the rugby at the weekend. And it seems she's not one for minimalism. Well, we started over some breaking news on the court case that Meghan Markle is bringing against the Mail on Sunday. Today, the judge, Lord Justice Warby, has said there will not be a full trial later this year. The Daily Mail's chief reporter, Sam Greenhill, has the latest. Well, the Duchess of Sussex has just won her High Court case against a newspaper. In the last few minutes, a judge has ruled in her favour without there ever being a full trial. This is a very significant moment because it means that any showdown between Meghan and her father in a British courtroom will now no longer happen. She has won the case without it. Now, this all relates to the letter that she wrote uh, Thomas Markle, her estranged father, in 2018, the year of the royal wedding. Now, after her friends revealed the existence of the letter in an interview they gave to People magazine, Mr. Markle felt that they had mischaracterised the letter as a loving missive. And so to set the record straight, he took parts of the letter to the Mail on Sunday newspaper for publication. She responded by suing the newspaper for what she said were breaches of her privacy and copyright. Last month, the Duchess asked Mr Justice Warby to decide the case in her favour without there being a full trial. Now, he has agreed to just that. He said in a ruling, the claimant had a reasonable expectation that the contents of the letter would remain private. There will still be a trial of some sort on the issue of copyright, which we'll get more details about later. It means there will no longer be a trial at the Royal Courts of Justice, which had been expected this autumn. Both Meghan and her father had vowed to take the witness stand on opposing sides of the case. But last month, Meghan's lawyers argued that the newspaper had no prospect of successfully defending itself and urged the judge to decide the case in her favour straight away. The newspaper argued there were certain issues that could only be resolved at her trial, and these included cross-examining both Meghan and her father on oath on the witness stand. Mr Justice Warby has clearly disagreed, saying, The inescapable conclusion is that, save to the very limited extent I have identified, the disclosures in the letter were not of a necessary or proportionate means of serving the purpose of correcting the record as Mr Markle saw it. Mr Warby went on, for the most part, they did not serve that purpose at all. Taken as a whole, the disclosures were manifestly excessive and hence unlawful. 
The question now is whether the newspaper will appeal this ruling. We'll have to wait and see. The newspaper's lawyers will at this very moment be poring over the judgment to see if there is a way of taking the case to the Court of Appeal. It may be that this extraordinary case isn't over yet. That news came in after we had finished recording this week's episode of Palace Confidential. So let's turn now to some of the other breaking news from the week. And what better way to start a gloomy lockdown February, but with some cheery news. And Princess Eugenie has given us that. She's given birth to her first baby. Daily Mail's Royal Editor Rebecca English is with us now to discuss. Ah, oh, Rebecca, Princess Eugenie has had her baby. Uh, what do we know so far about the little one? It's lovely news, isn't it? We all have a royal baby. So Princess Eugenie and Jack, husband Jack Brooksbank are celebrating the birth of their first baby. He's a little boy. was born at the Portland on Monday at 8.55 in the morning, weighing a very bouncing eight pounds, one ounce. Jack was there for the birth. Um, we don't have a name or photographs yet, but I'm told they're pretty imminent. Um, but everyone is meant to be delighted and doing well. Oh, and have Buckingham Palace put out a statement? What, what has it said about the Queen's, I believe, ninth great-grandchild? Yes, they did put out a statement, because although Eugenie's not a working royal, she's still the Queen's granddaughter. She's 10th in line to the throne. Her son's 11th in line to the throne. And as you say, it's the Queen's ninth great-grandchild, but the first grandchild um, in, the, um, in the York family. So it's a real cause for family, family celebration. Oh, and I believe that uh, Eugenie gave birth in the last hospital in town serving afternoon tea. That sounds pretty fancy. Well, I don't know about you, Joe, but I, I was lucky if I even got a cup of tea after I came back, um, let, alone, exactly. let, alone af- let alone afternoon tea. Um, but yeah, he, he was delivered at the Portland, which is a very exclusive London hospital. If you're having a consultant-led birth there, that's going to cost you close to £7,000 without even the cost of staying in there, which I assume is probably like a five-star hotel. And it's beloved of celebrities, um, Victoria Beckham, Kate Winslet, Claudia Schiffer, they've all given birth there. And of course, most recently, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's son, Archie Harrison, was delivered there as well. Well, a royal baby is a lovely distraction, isn't it? And some would argue particularly useful one for the Queen this week, as The Guardian has published a story drawing attention to the fact that the Queen can have input into the laws going through Parliament. Rebecca, so tell us, what did that Guardian story say? In a nutshell, the Guardian's uncovered papers, which they believe show that the Queen's lawyers lobbied government ministers to change draft legislation to hide details of her private wealth, namely stocks and shares and things like that, from the public. Now, obviously, these documents relate almost 50 to events 50 years ago in the 1970s but they believe it's an example of the monarchy using something called queen's consent which allows them to um, affect draft law before it becomes legislation which they believe is obviously unconstitutional that's what their argument would be buckingham palace of course deny this they say this is parliamentary procedure there really is nothing to see here and the, the queen has never attempted to block legislation in her life One man who knows more about the inner workings of the royal finances than most is biographer David McClure. We spoke to him about the Queen's monetary matters and why she can't be treated like any private citizen. The Queen's consent is a rather arcane procedure that basically allows the Queen to stop or change a piece of legislation before it completes all the stages in the parliamentary process. Now, this only applies to two sorts of laws. 
first of all, laws that affect the royal prerogative. That's another fancy word that basically means the special powers of the queen, such as the powers to uh, dissolve parliament. The other sort of legislation is laws that affect the queen's private property and private financial interests. Well, what is striking about the Guardian story is not so much that the Queen used the Queen's consent, because that is almost automatic and it's her right to do it, but it's the way in which she used this power. First of all, it's slightly unusual that she didn't send her own top courtier. Normally, it would be the role of the private secretary to represent the Queen in liaison with the government. But on this occasion, she used her own private lawyers from Farris. Secondly, it's the way in which the lawyers went about their business. It's, you know, it's quite interesting from the government papers that the, the language that was used, that they talked about the Queen being concerned, they talked about it being embarrassing, they talked about sort of risks, and they also used statements like, you know, the government got us into this quandary and it's up to the government to get us out of this quandary. What's interesting about the story is that it, it fits into a wider pattern of behaviour going on for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years where the Queen has appeared to be reluctant to disclose the, the total size of her wealth. You saw this, first of all, in 1971, when there was a big parliamentary inquiry into reforming the financing of the royal family. And on that occasion, MPs made repeated attempts to get a precise figure for a private worth, and they got no joy out of the palace. This happened again in 1989, when there was a similar attempt to reform the financing of the royal household, this time by a treasury committee. Again, they made representation to the palace to try and get a figure about her worth, and again, they got no joy. This can only mean that when it comes to the monarch and her private money, it's one of the red lines which you cannot cross. Well, what's interesting about the story, I suppose, is the word embarrassing. That's the word often used by her lawyers. Now, it begs the question, why is it embarrassing? Is it embarrassing because the nature of, of the actual investments in which firms, you know, we presume the Queen only has investments in good and proper blue chip UK companies. But if it came to pass that the investments, one or two of the investments were in slightly less savory firms, yes, that would be embarrassing. And of course, there is a precedent for that because about four years ago, there was something called the Paradise Papers that revealed that the Queen's private estate, the Duchy of Lancaster, had investments in offshore, in tax havens. And some of those, the money in that investment was actually in firms in Britain. And two of those firms were a little bit dodgy. And indeed, they later went bust. The bulk of the Queen's wealth has actually been derived from tax breaks granted by the government, which do not go to any private citizen. For instance, when it comes to inheritance tax, she, doesn't pay, she hasn't paid inheritance tax on getting Balmoral and Sandringham. When it comes to her private estate, the Duchy of Lancaster, she doesn't pay corporation tax or capital gains tax. And when it comes to more personal matters, for the first 40 years of her reign, she didn't pay any income tax nor tax on her investment income. Private wealth has always been a tricky issue, not just for the Queen, but for all members of the royal family. Because, you know, their job is to get their message across. They need to communicate or to connect to the mass of the population. You know, hence, we don't see images of members of the royal family shooting grouse or lounging on luxury liners. Because at the end of the day, the queen wants to appear less rich than she actually is. 
Richard Eden, coming to you. Now, this mechanism has actually been in place for decades, but do you think people are surprised at how regularly the Queen appears to have used it? Yes, what I found interesting was the number of times. So I think the, according to the Guardian's calculations, Queen's consent had been used more than a thousand times during um, the Queen's reign, which works out about sort of 14 times a year. But it is just a sort of matter of course. And, you know, we need to be clear, you know, the Guardian is a Republican paper. Um, but having said that, I think the, you know, the royal family do need to be careful. Um, we discussed it the other week with the question of changes to leaseholds, where the government's trying to give people rights to buy the lease on their property. And there were suggestions that there was going to be an exemption for the royal family from that legislation. And they will have seen the law um, via Queen's consent. And so I think they, they do need to bear in mind that, yes, they've got this power, but it needs to be used carefully. Richard Kay, now David spoke there of a suggestion by the former MP Norman Baker that the Queen's financial interests should be a matter of public record, the same as um, with MPs. What do you think of that move going forward? Well, we're all fascinated by how rich the Queen is, how rich the Prince of Wales might be. But aren't the royal family entitled to the same degree of privacy about their private income like the rest of us? Um, you know, do we need to know everything about how the Queen makes her money, where she spends it, how she chooses to invest it? I think it's a fine line between what she should tell us as monarch and as head of state, and which there are, is an obligation on her to reveal, and, which, and what she is entitled to keep private. Um, and I think the more that we know about her private side of her income, the more difficult it becomes for them to sort of maintain any kind of, of, of privacy, if you like, about a very important element of their life. I mean, we're, we're brought up to think that our own, our own private income and what we give to the taxman is a matter between us and the taxman. We, we'd all be pretty fed up if our income was, uh, was sort of public for public consumption. Um, and I think the same argument applies to the Queen. Having said that, um, you know, the Queen's wealth has been an enduring source of fascination ever since she came to the throne. Um, I suppose the counterpoint to that privacy argument would be that uh, even the Queen's private income is something that has, you know, been gained through sort of like, you know, the, the ordaining of, of birth, the birthright, the, and, you know, historical public funds. Well, that, that's, that goes to the whole uh, argument, if you like, about monarchy. I mean, and, I mean who, whose possessions does she have in trust? Are they ours or, the, or are they hers? Um, and, and the whole manner in which the royal family has accumulated its wealth. I mean, it goes back almost a thousand years. It certainly goes back to the reign of King Henry VIII um, when they began a, a being, becoming quite as acquisitive as they were. Um, but, the, you know... At what point do you say, well, OK, this is this is royal family money or this is our money? I mean, the assumption is that the, the royal collection, for example, is a marvellous collection of treasures and, and art that the Queen has is, in fact, she she runs it on behalf of the nation. It's not her. She can't buy and sell it. She can't get a new dishwasher by flogging off a Degas or anything like that. You know, they, they belong to the country. Um, mm. but, and sometimes these things get conflated into her private wealth. And I think there is a lot of, um, w you know, wicked reporting at times around, around the Queen and her money, often from uh, Republican-leaning uh, publications like The Guardian.
Mm. Uh, Richard, even the use of lawyers by the palace to communicate with the government does seem to be particularly contentious. Well, what do you make of that? Um, I'm not sure it is contentious, really. I mean, come on, the Queen, if she's being shown this legislation and how it could affect um, royal interests or have an impact, impact, she needs her lawyers to look at that. I mean, you know, yes, the Queen's a very experienced woman, but she's not a legal expert and she might not know what implications it has. So I presume they're there to advise and then, I guess, pass on those concerns to the government. I, I don't see that as a sinister thing, particularly. So, Richard Kay, we recently discussed the Prince Charles's Duchy of Cornwall and how much money that is all of worth. If the Queen has a lot more money than the public actually thinks, is that's, you know, that's something that is going to change the perception of the monarchy, isn't it? Well, it, would, it might change the perception of the monarchy if she was seen to be a, being a spendthrift, if she was lavishing money on expensive possessions, but the fact is the Queen doesn't. I mean, she's a she's a very she's very modest in her tastes. Yes, she has all these fabulous homes and palaces, some of which are owned by the state, some of which are privately owned. But she's she's not someone who who goes out and spends vast sums of money. She's clearly a rich woman, um, and I I believe, and I think David touched on this that the the best estimate of her, of her wealth is in the sort of three hundred to four hundred million category. Well, if you look at the for example, the Sunday Times Rich List, that doesn't put her anywhere very high. I think it around about 372 of the top 1,000 people in the country. So yes, she's rich by many people's standards, but she's not on, on oligarch scale. Yeah, poor, poor the Queen. <laughs> Richard Eden, this isn't the only royal money story this week. Why don't you tell us what's going on with Mike Tyndall and Peter Phillips? Oh, this was intriguing. Um, in my column last Saturday, um, I revealed that Peter Phillips, the Queen's eldest grandchild, had been taking furlough money. And that's money that is from, um, you know, hard pressed taxpayers that's meant to help companies out during the pandemic. Um, he'd claimed for it for one of his companies, an equestrian events company that's never made any profit or anything. And it was to pay for a member of staff. And then The Sun followed this up this week with a story about Mike Tyndall, who's obviously married to um, Zara, Queen's granddaughter. And the same for him. His company is really himself. It's giving speeches and this sort of thing, which he hasn't been able to do, same as Peter Phillips's company, during the pandemic. So he's been claiming um, furlough, not for himself, it should be said, but for a member of staff. From what I hear, it's an office manager, PA type person. But because they come from very wealthy families, it just doesn't seem right that someone who's paying, you know, only say earning £15,000 a year is paying taxes to subsidise a member of staff um, for the royals. But then that is that is what the furlough scheme was. It's been used by companies, you know, big companies across um, the country. I should add, it hasn't been used by the Daily Mail at all. Um, but mm. others have made use of it. And the idea is that those jobs are still there at the end of the crisis and the government hasn't had to pay for unemployment benefits or this sort of thing. Has there been any comment from either Mike Tyndall or Peter Phillips? Um, they've kept pretty quiet about it, as you might expect, which sort of adds to the sense of, um, you know, it is a bit embarrassing. Um, but, you know, we can't really have it both ways. On the one hand, they, they don't have titles, these people like Peter Phillips, they've had to work for a living. And so then if they do um, 
do the same as other companies and have the same tax breaks, whatever, it, it doesn't really seem right to criticise them too much. Hmm. Well, what better way to see how the other half live than to get a good old nose around their houses. And we got a particularly interesting glimpse of Princess Anne behind closed doors this week when she tweeted a picture of herself relaxing on the sofa watching the rugby match between England and Scotland. Why did this tweet of Princess Anne's support get so much discussion on Twitter? I loved this, didn't you? Um, what everyone loved was the fact that it showed the whole of her living room at Gatcombe Park in all its, dare I say, cluttered glory. I mean, there was family pictures, animal figurines, papers, dog books. Um, it, it was just brilliant. And I think we've all developed a bit of a guilty pleasure through this lockdown and the kind of evolution of uh, computer and video calls and, and having a bit of a gander around our colleagues and famous people's um, front rooms. And I think that's what was so brilliant about it. It was, it was everything that people say about Gatcombe Park, you know, slightly worn around the edges, you know, a bit down the hill, but kind of faded country um, grandeur. I thought it was brilliant. Richard Eden, we've just been hearing about how rich the royals are. Do, do, do you think that this sort of like cluttered room is a bit at odds at how we feel the other half live? I think this is actually great um, public relations, isn't it, for the royal family? Because, you know, people see a picture like this on social media or in the paper and they think, you know what, I've got a posher living room than that. Or, um, you know, it gives them a chance to criticise or whatever. But I think the, the key point is you see um, a pretty ordinary, you know, country um, living room. And it, to, to me, it brought back memories of that wonderful um, Daily Mirror story years ago where they... They, they managed to get a, one of their reporters to train as a footman. They got a job with the Queen. It's something that no one would do now. It, we wouldn't get it past our lawyers or the press regulator <laughs> or anything. But they sneaked their man in there. And he got the job as a footman. He was taking all these photos. So we saw the Tupperware that the Queen and Prince Philip used for their breakfast. And it really made everyone think again about um, the royal family and how actually they, they were probably more frugal than you and I. Well, Richard Kay, that's what you were saying earlier, wasn't it? The Queen is very careful with money. But do you think that Princess Anne's room just shows that people like me, you know, the, the sort of like the, the Aussie girl, we just don't understand what posh is? We don't, do we? I mean, and the <laughs> idea of, of, of the fairy tale princess, and you imagine they live in sort of picture-perfect palaces, but they're not. They're pretty ramshackle. I mean, I, I'm still always amused when I see those pictures of the Queen particularly at Balmoral with the one-bar electric fire in the hearth, the threadbare tartan furniture. I mean, you know, it's, it's like an ordinary home in many ways. Yes, of course, they have, they have a, a lavish side to their homes too. Um, but the, the, uh, the, the one they project, and the one that's been projected a lot through the pandemic is, look, we, you know, we're quite ordinary, really. We, we are much like the rest of you. We live in a lot of clutter. Uh, we haven't tied it up. We haven't swept up the ashes. I'm just looking at my fireplace now. And, you know, I, you know, and that's what the royals are like. They're like a bit like the rest of us. I'm not saying they're slovenly. They, of course, have a lot of staff to do most of the domestic heavy lifting. Um, but Princess Anne, I think, gave us a window on her world. And it's a world which is unfussy, uh, disorganized and, and, and all that more attractive because of it. Rebecca, you must have been in a lot of these houses. What, what, what's your most memorable <laughs> royal visit moment? I, do you know what? I think one of the first times you step into Clarence House, even the public rooms, 
um, you, you kind of take in the surroundings. And yes, it is full of kind of glorious artwork and priceless antiques. But then you realise that the tables are just covered with these intimate family photographs. You know, I really do hesitate to say the royals are just like us. They're not. But when it comes to family, they are. And, uh, you know, you, you stand there and you kind of feel like your eyes like, looking down trying to kind of, kind of gain a sneaky look at these pictures because they're pictures that the public have never seen before and it's them with their arms around each other laughing joking it's fantastic yeah I suppose when, when we think of royal portraits we think of the stiff you know formal things that end up on Christmas cards but is it like you know them all playing twister at Christmas are there things like that <laughs> well not quite playing to twister at Christmas <laughs> there tends to be a lot of military uniforms and sitting in chairs but they are I, I look at those pictures and I just think I really wish they would let the public see those because I think it would you know show them in a very different light um but of course I, as Richard said earlier on the other subject you know the royal family are entitled to some privacy as well and when it comes to family they feel quite strongly about that we can't end this program without a toast to the new 11th in line to the throne can we so I've, um, in honour of Jack Brooksbank, who, whose job is a um, tequila ambassador, I've got a um, shot of tequila here. So here's to the new royal baby. It's six o'clock it, somewhere, that, Richard. I was about to say, he's a bit early for that. <laughs> it's six o'clock somewhere. <laughs> I can't handle my tequila, but Richard Eaton can probably go and have a lie down now because we've come to the end of another week of Palace Confidential. My thanks as ever to my guests, Rebecca English, Richard Kay, Richard Eden, and David McClure. And thank you for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.